0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and we're joined by author Larry Zuckerman. Larry will be reading from Lonely Are the Brave. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. Anytime. Could you please tell us a little bit about the book?
1: Sure. I like to write historical novels about what I call quiet subversives. They're not the sort of people you'll find waving red flags on the barricades, but they live differently from their peers. And whether they know it or not, they're sort of showing a revolutionary style of life. And then as uh, someone whose historical specialty is the First World War, I took my home state, Washington which was a snake pit of hypocrisy and fear at the end of the first world war in 1919 when this book is set and i said all right what would my protagonist let's make him a war hero who's come home with a pile of medals so he's type of guy who would be lionized what would make him radical in someone else's eyes and at first I thought, okay, he gets into, there's a certain amount of labor strife going on. The international workers of the world were organizing mining camps and, and logging camps. I said, no, that's too busy. He's the type of guy who wants to come home and be quiet. So he decides that he's going to become an at-home father to the daughter whose late wife left behind. And he turns into a pariah. And he also finds out, here's a rumor, a persistent rumor, that the child isn't his. Meanwhile, the wife of his former lieutenant, she's the town timber heiress. She dreams of having a business career, which is not what anybody thinks that she should do. So she too, even though she doesn't know it, is subversive. And of course, these two people's paths will cross. So that's... that's the book.
0: How lovely. Could we have our first reading, please?
1: Sure. Written to beat all, dreaming for the thousandth time about his infant daughter and whom she took after, Raleigh Birch exited the Lumberton train and slipped on the last step. As he fell, he thought, survived war, broke my neck, coming home. His fingers dropped his baggage, grabbed, found only late April twilight, Landing on one heel, he flung his arms out to plead with gravity, somehow swung his other foot under him just in time. He straightened gingerly, gulped air, heard his pulse pound. Battling still in 1919, five months after the armistice. Mister, you all right? A man called, twenty feet up the station plaza. I'm fine, thanks. Raleigh smiled, waved, watched by two other passengers farther up, who turned to stare. Behind him, the train clanked into motion. The man who'd hailed him came a few steps closer. You okay? Raleigh gathered his fedora, duffel bag, and a brown paper bundle. Yes, thanks. He waved again, more like a signal to halt. A memory hurtled at him like a meteorite across seven years. High school, junior year, road game, leading off, second inning. He shook his head, startled. The man loped up, faced him, hands on hips. Say, aren't you Raleigh Birch? Yes. Raleigh started walking, wished again he'd paid attention on that stair. The guy, a chubby fellow who smelled of cigar, kept pace. I read about you, Sergeant Birch. Thought those Huns a thing or two, didn't you? Kind of you. He quickened his step. The guy beside him puffed breath, but stayed even. Probably too old to fight, and thought he'd missed the chance of a lifetime. I heard about your loss. Raleigh stiffened, threw him a glance, asking for the clemency of silence. My condolences. Very kind of you. By now he was double-timing it. Say, the guy said, inhaling hard, aren't you just home from the army? Just now? Raleigh glanced over his shoulder, nodded. Lucky the others had gone. Welcome home. We're all pulling for you. Thanks. See you around. Raleigh, almost running toward solitude, hurtled up 6th Street. He noted the street lamps, as yet unlit, new since his last leave almost exactly a year ago. His suit, musty from storage, hung loosely, and his street shoes rubbed his feet. Bowers, Cody Bowers, the lefty pitcher in that game junior year. Raleigh slowed, turned the corner, his eye lighting on sidewalks and sewer drains, also new. Fine drizzle pinpricked his hat brim and shoulders, the mist that cocooned Lumberton much of the year. The damp breeze carried the woody floral scent that proclaimed a new life. He filled his lungs, and a sweet shudder rose within. He whispered, Genevieve Marie Birch. Speak up there. Give the password. More loudly, he offered, Genevieve Marie, drawing out the syllables, testing his right to them. He resumed his march. Bowers. His first at-bat that game, Raleigh had settled into the box, and they traded nods, like each was saying, I've heard about you. He'd taken two practice swings, waited, and the first pitch sent him sprawling. The breeze shifted, and Chalmers' sawmill near the river tainted the hit, a stink that Lumberton shrugged off as the price of prosperity. A block over, two women in cylindrical, wide-brimmed hats stared. One called, Mr. Burt, is that you? He kept his head down. Two streets over, one forward, and a dash around a corner brought him home. On the pebbled front walk, he trembled, surveyed the three-bedroom ranch he'd built for Tess. The roof still drained the rain. The window frames looked square. Wisteria overflowed the arbor ten feet from the door. Everything solid, yet a black wreath hung below the knocker. A widower at twenty-three. Raleigh bowed his head, trembled again. Fate, my goddamn army, had decided he wouldn't get to comfort Tess on her deathbed had she cursed him for his absence. He looked right to his workshop. The rain gurgled sleepily in the downspouts. Next door to his left, a curtain moved in a two-story brick colonial. The McLeans hadn't changed. Past his workshop, the clobbered two-bedroom ranch that housed the Nelsons cast a dim light from behind drawn shades. He removed his fedora and knocked on his front door, couldn't have counted to two before Bonnie opened it, wearing a light blue dress, eyes moist in the foyer light. His sister's gaze registered that he'd come home whole, like she'd worried since the armistice, disbelieving his letters. Her full lips quivered, tireless in expression like their late mother's. Rolly beamed at her and Genevieve, asleep with her head tucked just beneath her aunt's chin, his breath caught. In a yellow union suit, his daughter's little body expanded and let out air in a blessedly audible way. He now understood why Mom had sometimes looked in on him at night, just to know he still breathed. How daunting to give life, only to risk it ending. But Genevieve breathed spectacularly. And what fine, dark hair, tiny fingers curling as she dreamed. She shared the bold birch forehead, Tess's gently rounded ears, a familiar face, yet unique, a wonder. He heard again Bowers's heat smack the catcher's glove, The Louisville crowd went, and Corey Henderson, the Lumberton's starting pitcher, bellowed from the dugout, wait till you come up to bat. Raleigh, lying supine, grasped the dirt with both hands as if to prove he still inhabited earth and got up. He took his time shaking out his cap and placing it on his head, hefting his bat and assuming his stance while his heart beat fit to flee his chest. He sensed his teammate's gaze, asking if he'd bail on the next inside pitch, flail at a curve outside but Raleigh, though his knees might have wobbled, tipped his cap to Bowers and dug his spikes into the dirt. After the season ended, Coach Dawson told him that was the moment he became a ballplayer, even though he'd hit 3.47 going into that game, combined average over two years and counting, even though he'd struck out that at-bat and must have looked silly doing it. With Bonnie and Genevieve, he might strike out now too and look silly. But he didn't know what to fear about fatherhood, only that he mustn't reveal any, or Bonnie would doubt him, just as the soldiers in his squad would have doubted his leadership, and themselves, had Raleigh ever shown his nerves. So he told himself that life had chosen him for this adventure, special. He dropped his hat, duffel and bundle, and folded his loved ones in his arms. You're home, safe and sound. I'm so glad, Bonnie cried softly. He held her close, thrilled to see you too, Bon, and that you're okay. You're the best. When he let his girls go, finally, and closed the door, he said, She's beautiful, Bon, and you've taken such good care of her. Bless you, bless you. The half-light revealed the caverns of her eyes. She's been keeping you up nights. No, not really. His sister never complained. You're swaying like a tree in the wind, here. He held his hands out and Bonnie gave him Genevieve. When he rested the baby against his chest, she fussed and he almost panicked like that fastball would get him this time. But he drew a deep breath, held it like that would avert trouble and smiled confidently as if he'd never imagined that Genevieve would protest or that he wouldn't find his way with her. And when she quieted, sliding her saliva-wet clammy fingers against his neck, warmth ripped through his arms like he'd triumphed. A first step. Oh, Raleigh, don't you look sweet together. Mom would have been so proud. What other people exacted a price for, Bonnie gave freely. A cord had always bound them together. I don't want to rush you, she said, but we should leave soon. We're having supper at Dad's, and I, she giggled nervously, haven't started cooking. The old man might have brewed a storm with himself as the vortex, but maybe she exaggerated. And anyway, Holly wasn't going anywhere. Let's talk a while first, Bon. She nodded, but he'd set her on edge. The bind tightened. As a boy, he'd read an Alexandra Dumas adventure story, the Corsican brothers, about conjoined twins separated at birth who shared the other's feelings and knew instinctively if danger threatened their sibling. The story had swallowed him whole, and he'd spun elaborate fantasies that brought the Corsican countryside to Lumberton. He'd portrayed himself fighting duels for Bonnie. All victories or deterring enemies by his rapier wit or sterling character. Like a true knight, he never told her. He looked toward his bedroom like he somehow expected Tess to come greet him. Bonnie noticed. I'm sorry, Raleigh, about Tess. I did the best I could. Of course you did, Bon. Like always. Was the influenza? She blamed herself for everything short of bad weather. And nothing, he said, ever changed that. Moving left past the coat rack, he paused by the low oak chest of drawers near the front window. Bonnie flicked on a lamp, which confirmed a guess. A photo in a silver frame stood atop the chest, bordered in black. Tess, dark hair piled high, smirking, head cocked, a familiar pose. What had amused her? Tears started to his eyes. He'd have turned to hide except Bonnie touched his elbow that connecting cord. When? He pointed his chin at the photo, a week after Genevieve was born, just before Tess got sick. Raleigh nodded, his mouth working like an old man's, trying not to lose his false teeth. His daughter's heartbeat tapped his chest, like she was trying to send him a message, and he closed his eyes, taking her in. He kissed her head, smelled her skin, which had a scent unlike anything. Not talc, which he might have expected if he'd thought about it, but something sweet, indefinable. Baby. Tess looks proud and happy. Bonnie nodded eagerly. She was. She wanted him to think so, but he still believed her, and that comforted him, gave him a handhold to climb toward the hope that Tess had taken pleasure toward the end. Roland approached the sofa, noting the well-dusted white living room walls the gently coved ceiling Tess had wanted for its romantic associations. The bookshelf that stood largely vacant and stiffened. Bonnie's eyes followed his toward a cabinet against the rear wall. She said, Tess must have spent a little money here and there, and went pink. That's okay. What kind of husband did Bonnie think he'd been? Nothing wrong with a phonograph, but good ones cost about $50. And that front panel, walnut or maple? carved like the grill on a fancy car, had caught his eye. He sat and patted the sofa, prompting, did a mild double-take. Bonnie's dress, a pinstripe, roughed at the sleeves and overskirt, looked familiar, yet unlike the calf-length tubular jobs other women wore, candy bar wrappers. She sat, is comfortable with you. Surprise inflected her voice upward. He smiled like her doubt didn't bother him. So tell me, Bonnie, how are you? Really? I'm fine. I stayed busy. Well, that's new. Instead of lying in bed all day and getting breadcrumbs in the sheets. She laughed and nudged him playfully. Like him, Bonnie had deep brown hair, but wavier. Dressed atop the crown, parted and pinned, so that it just covered her ears. Flattering. Brother and sister shared Mom's dark eyes, but Bonnie's lashes were long and delicate. And whenever her mouth forgot to regret taking up space on the planet, she shone with a beauty that made him proud. She also dressed well, selling her own clothes, because Dad only spent money on himself. And now Raleigh solved the mystery. He'd seen similar dresses in France, and she copied styles and newspaper photos. He threw her a sideways glance, lips curling up in wonder. Bonnie drew back, studying him. No praise allowed. I hope, he began, and stopped. He had to ask. I am taking care of... I hope you didn't ignore your own life. Bonnie shook her head like he was incorrigible. I have friends, Raleigh. I'm not a slave. He pictured social outings when she had his child to look after. The cord tugged at a sore spot. Friends? She dipped her head, having understood his inflection. Stuart Maron. He started jolting Genevieve, who bleated once. Bonnie held out her hands, but Raleigh shook his head. It seemed a late hour for Genevieve to nap in arms, but what did he know? Do you like Stuart? She watched her left foot tap the oval rug as if to make sure it worked. He's okay. Raleigh gave her a soft, cajoling smile. Does Dad have a stake in this? Now, Raleigh, don't say that. He's leaving it up to me. Marin was a phoebe who happened to own Lumberton's largest hardware store, made money he hadn't even folded yet, as Dad would have said. Was the old man pushing her at Marin, or was it her idea? Raleigh, skeptical, wished he knew. Speaking of that," she said, "shouldn't we go over there?" "I don't want to, Bob. I'm sorry. Not tonight. But that means I." Her eyes assumed a hunted look, and her head shrank into her neck like a turtle's. Raleigh rested two fingers on her forearm. "I'll fix my own dinner, thanks. Just teach me what I need to know about Genevieve." She stared, lips parted. "There's no food here, Raleigh." He'd bet his mustering out pay she'd stocked the icebox and the cupboards, but he said. I'll hotel Taylor to Olson's. They still stay open till six, don't they? Bonnie's eyes pinched like her insides pained her, and her fingers twisted each other in her lap. We have to go. Dad sprained his knee a few days ago. Rolly pretended she made sense. Oh, that's too bad. I'll visit him tomorrow. She swallowed, nodded, her thumb fussed at his sleeve. You know how he gets. Yeah, I know. But please, Bon, just tell me what I need to know and I'll be fine. Would he, though? Or is she hiding trouble with Genevieve? His chest tightened. It'll be... You'll need help with her. Not if you teach me. And you're a good teacher. He watched her for clothes. Wow, oh. Bonnie sighed. There are eggs, potatoes, and a few other things. I'll make eggs, hash browns. He waved a hand. Perfect. Cook and hold Genevieve? She asked. At the same time? I'll put her down. Does she have a quid? If not, he'd make one. Well, no, you can use a bureau drawer, but that won't work. Not with her. So that was it. His stomach twisted. Why not? She cries if you lay her down for even a minute, and she doesn't stop. You mean you've been holding her? He pursed his lips. Since February? Not for all that time, but it's been a little while, yes. Is she sick? Bonnie touched his hand. Doc Christopher says no. Some babies are just like that. Well, Bon, he smiled, drawing full breaths again. And they gave me medals. Bonnie shook with laughter, which he watched fondly for the four seconds she allowed herself. I had help with tasks, she said, like she'd exaggerated before. Not Dad. Your face looks so funny. No, not Dad. Kay Sorensen, who makes the wheels turn at her father's office, it seems. He hadn't expected that name or his sister's admiration. Well, I'll be, he replied. Odd, too, that Kate would want a job, but she did like making wheels turn. She's civic-minded, Raleigh. Yeah. But when your father owns the sawmill, the timber company, and damn near all the woodlands, and you hold yourself apart, civic-minded sounds like self-interest. Even so, he owed her thanks and didn't that sting. Raleigh stood up. I bet you can tell me a lot. Again, her lips parted, eyes pleaded. Why, why can't you come with me? I can teach you another time. Well, I could. He hesitated, hunting the softest phrases. I didn't want to have to tell you yet, Vaughn, bon, but you, well, I'm not working with that anymore. His sister slapped a hand over her mouth. It'll be okay, trust me, but tonight isn't I just got home, and what will you do then? Raleigh gave her his best just between us look. Make furniture and sell it. Bonnie's eyes widened like he planned to spin straw into gold. You can do that? He laughed. Ever been here before? He gestured at the coffee table. She nudged him. I get the making part. But what about Genevieve? What about her? He kissed the top of his daughter's head. Tonight. How will you manage? Her foot tapped again. Raleigh grinned amiably. That's why I need you, Bob, to teach me. She studied him. You really mean? His smile turned knowing. She hadn't wanted to show her doubts, yet had anyway. Sure. Give it a try. And, he added, Genevieve is my child. So what's wrong with it? Bonnie shook her head like he was incorrigible again and jumped up. Just a sec. From the small table beside the sofa, she grabbed a white cloth with pink stitching, a sling. She hung it over his shoulder and helped position Genevieve inside so deftly. Supporting her head, he noticed, that the little girl never woke. You made this, didn't you, Bon? She nodded shyly, but she said, Let me show you stuff. In the kitchen. He rose, looking around at the house he'd built for Tess and himself to live in till they grew old together, raising their children, sanding down one another's rough edges, taking pleasure and richness from their common grain. Did I keep the place right for you? Bonnie asked. Oh, Bon, it's heaven. What he dreamed of coming home, to, where each breath filled him with domesticity, rather than that, a decay and poison and stench of war. Just what I needed. And Genevieve, too. Bono lit up, like he'd given her a gift, and left for the kitchen. Raleigh lingered and closed his eyes. Running his fingertips over the plaster he'd traveled onto the wall, sensing the occasional rough amid the smoothness savoring his chance to appreciate both he was home
0: oh lovely so we did it differently this time um no not yet i think what i'm going to do because usually i would do a um a question and then a three to five minute reading and then a question and then a three to five minute reading but this time we did it differently so we had um kind of one question and a lot of reading And i feel like we could have listened to you read like (laughs) <laughs> for the rest of the night, it just feels like it's so um, immersive. But so, what I'm going to do is okay. I'm going to ask my other questions, and then I'm um, going to ask you for a final five minute reading, and in that way, we'll at least get like a little flavor of where you want us to to end with. But so, one okay. of my questions is, is like usually I am fascinated with 1919, but really for like for selfish reasons because my grandmother was born in 1919. So. I'm curious for you. You researched 1919. The book is set in 1919, and so Raleigh he comes home from the war. He's a he's a widow, and Kay is married to a man. And I was thinking, so she might wish she was a widow, but she's not. So um, he comes home, and then all these restrictions and changes kind of come with him. And I'm just really curious about the sort of research that you did to write the book and bring 1919 and both, you know, such different characters to life.
1: I spent. A bit of time looking at the seattle times for the first mostly the first four months of that year and i discovered a lot of stuff that i would never have figured on and i'm an expert on that time period um among other things one of the things that that struck me is that washington was before the war was an isolationist state the war was a European blood feud, no part, we have no part in it, it's not It's not us, it's about, you know, decadent Europe, who cares, meanwhile, you know, we're selling them all the wood they need, all the wheat they need, all the weapons they need, making a pile of money on it, So, so there's that, but the minute that Congress declared war, all of a sudden, everybody is 110% in favor of killing those barbarian Huns. And the really interesting part about that is that the reason that wound up being the popular one was to protect American womenhood from the barbarian Hun. Now, how that was going to happen, not really sure because the Germans were in no position to invade that they really were not interested in invading. And if they did, they would have other things on their minds besides the state of American womanhood, but that was there. And in fact, what I would do is I would I would read about the various parades that happened. I chose a particular regiment for Raleigh because I wanted him to serve in certain battles in certain places, and he came home with his regiment in late April of 1919. And the description of the parade that they held in downtown Seattle for him was very telling. It had these women in white riding the running boards of these cars throwing white petals flower petals along strewing them along the route there were four white horses that were that were dragging this huge gold star gold stars is, is to honor the fallen and so on and so forth but at the very head of the parade were police dressed as cowboys Um, and a member of the Elks Lodge dressed as Native Americans. And so they were, it was, they were playing cowboys and Indians. And the reason for that is because the name of the division was the Wild West. And this was considered to be very funny, very wonderful and very entertaining and great taste. And I said, okay, Raleigh takes one look at this and he says, they're insulting my dead friends. Um, so. That gave me that gave me an, a view to his character. Meanwhile, Kay says, "What's wrong with this? She has no idea because she's a civilian. So there was a divide between soldier and civilian, as there always is. There was also uh, much talk in the first four months of that year about the labor uh, trouble that i mentioned earlier the wobblies the iww and they were being persecuted hounded there was a general strike in seattle in february um which lasted i think five days and there were the they it was considered that there were bolshevik elements behind that there weren't so it was there was a time of of much fear and worry and that everything would go wrong, even though we had just won a great victory. Um, there was also a f- fair amount of excessive pride. Um, Raleigh's unit spent six between six and seven weeks in combat and fought alongside French and Belgian units that had been in the war for fifty months. <laughs> so it was a little bit, uh, but. Try to tell Seattleites or Washingtonians about that because they're like, "We won," you know. So okay, so all of that went into the mix. And so when I decided to, I invented the town Lumberton. I had a general idea about where I would put it, sort of a bedroom community of Seattle, maybe an hour away by train, because that's necessary to the plot. I said, "This is a small town." It's not even Seattle, which has some major universities. It's a a seaport with international trade, so on and so forth. This place is unsophisticated and even more fearful. And so I played, I played that up. Uh, there's a character who refers to a Lumberton as the gossip capital of Washington and another one who says it's Lumberton's greatest resource. So it's, that was the atmosphere that I was trying to create. And that was, that was where my res- research came from, aside from the stuff about fashion or about house prices or stuff like that. You look at the want ads and, and, and you'd see. It was also the pandemic had just, the 1918 flu pandemic had just faded. Uh, Tess is one of the, probably one of the last victims that, that the, uh, that the state suffered. So that, that's where I got it from.
0: Yeah. Was there anything in your research? That either kind of surprised you or you found it challenging or interesting. I was surprised at how
1: tub thumping everything was. I mean, I knew that it was going to be something like that, but I was, I was astonished the, to the degree of it because Washington has a reputation of being, at least now, of being fairly countercultural. It wasn't back then. So it was, I, I was thinking, okay, this is my city as it was 100 years ago. And it's really extremely provincial and very intolerant. I mean, I knew there was going to be some of that, but I was surprised at the depths of it. That was, that was one thing.
0: Wow. So could we have our final three to five minute reading, please?
1: At dusk, Kate Chalmer Sorensen drove the hutmobile to the station as the lyrics to There's a long, long trail wound through her head. Nights are growing very lonely. days are very long. She hummed the melody, rattling in Harry's phone call from Camp Lewis that afternoon. Can't wait to see you, kid, he would said, nearly crooning. Even the misting rain had let up just in time. Things would be different between Harry and her, a fresh start. I'm a growing weary only, listening for your song, she sang. When she parked, though, activity drew her eye and the song in her heart died. A crowd had gathered beneath the platform roof, which included that, of all people. Normally, Kay would have taken pride that he outshone everyone there with his thoughtful, mean and graying chestnut hair cropped close, like Caesar. But right then, she doubted both his thoughtfulness and the company he kept. Mayor Henderson, glassy smooth like the expensive silk ties he favored, puffed a cigarette as though he'd invented tobacco. The mayor had long arms and loved expansive gestures, his free hand sketched a mid-air mural. Beside him, leaning forward like he'd found a conversation to invade, George Reynolds cocked his head, which resembled a lumpy, half-peeled potato. A banker, he wore his patriotism on his sleeve. Many people quailed before him, including his daughter Clarissa, Kay's close friend. they must have made more than one telephone call. The Lumberton Bugle had even sent its top reporter a sandy-haired, bow-tied braggart whom wise Lumbertonians avoided and a reedy, twitchy photographer who loved a camera and tripod. The worst part? Dad had known, yet hadn't thought to tell her. Kay bowed her head over the steering wheel asking for strength. After a few seconds' privacy, she emerged, smiling from the hutmobile, glad for the wide running board, which allowed a graceful entrance. Ronald Gustafson, the reporter, doffed his hat and held out his hand, like she had not near to climb, not a six-inch platform. With another smile, she declined and tried to pass by, but Mr. Gustafson blocked her. How rude. She cut him a puzzled glance, but he dreaded his pen and pencil. "'Good evening, Mrs. Sorensen. "'I was hoping you'd care to make a statement about your husband's return.' "'What did he want her to say? "'How tickled she was that Harry had survived the war? "'Honestly, Lumberton deserved a better newspaper than the Bugle "'and a smarter scribe than Ron Gustafson. "'Naturally, I'm delighted, Mr. Gustafson, "'and I'm glad Harry played his part in our country's victory.' "'The reporter waited, but, when she remained silent, said, "'Thank you, Mrs. Sorensen. "'Does his homecoming mean you'll stop working for Chalmers' dinner?' The lights on the platform roof made her blink. She lowered her gaze. That's a personal question, Mr. Gustafson, between my husband and me. And she moved past him or tried to. But again he blocked her, and this time he couldn't have missed her annoyed expression. Let me by, please. I would like to speak to my father. The reporter hesitated, but no Lumbertonian ignored Martin Chalmers. So Mr. Gustafson yielded. Only after Kay walked past did she grimace at having borrowed Dad's power like her own voice didn't work just fine. Before she could reach in, the train's approach set the delegation scurrying. Dad, Claire Henderson, and Mr. Reynolds stood to one side, while the photographer, settling his tripod, took up the other. Ron Gustafson got in his way. Where did that leave Kay, the hero's wife? No choice but to walk between the two groups, ignore her father's and Mayor Henderson's belated invitations to join them, and advance toward the incoming train. Since she now impeded the photographer, he pleaded with her to move, which she also ignored. Harry stepped off the train, dashing in his crisp lieutenant's uniform, buttons and belt a gleam. He flashed his electric grin and his emerald eyes, which she'd fallen for as a University of Washington sophomore, fixed on her in the near dark. Two other passengers, a man and a woman, gawked, but Kay did not care. She flung herself into Harry's arms, earning a cheer. She danced. What if he didn't respond? But she'd banked on Harry's sense of drama, which he vindicated, shielding her face with his hat and kissing her, if quickly. Kay squeezed him and stepped back. I'm so proud of you, she said. He smiled, but, though his lips moved, he didn't reply. Kay rested her hand on his arm to reassure him, but he looked away, and she disengaged. The couple watching never moved, like they'd bought tickets to a show. Mrs. Sorensen, would you please stand next to your husband? The photographer asked. Kay complied. Hold it, please. A flash exploded, blinding her. Now, one of the hero by himself, the photographer said, and Kay retreated. The train rattled away, emitting coal smoke. This time, Kay turned her head and closed her eyes just before the flash. The welcoming committee swept past her like retreating waves, with- marina marooning a rock on a beach. Now the spectators left. Welcome home, Lieutenant Sorensen declared Mayor Anderson. You've done Lumberton and our country, proud. He shook Harry's hand. As the others took their turns, the reporter fired questions at him. "'Zivin Sorensen, what do you think our greatest task is in Reconstruction? What role do returning veterans have in our society? What do you think of the un-Americanism in our country?' To these and more, Harry answered fluidly, as if he'd prepared. That struck Kay as odd, but so did the questions. Harry held no elected office nor did he even hail from Lumberton. He practiced law in Seattle, his birthplace, and had moved to Lumberton on their marriage. Yet he sounded as if he'd brought a soapbox home from France. Lieutenant Sorensen, what are your plans? For us to leave so that he can become reacquainted with his lovely bride, said Mr. Reynolds. The mayor, photographer, and reporter chuckled. Hayes' face flamed, and Dad said sharply, George, which only underlined the crude remark. Now he just stood there, grinning, It hit her. Harry was running for office. The men greeting him, leading Lumberton Republicans, planned to endorse him. Lieutenant Sorensen, what do you think about the key problems facing us today? And isn't it a coincidence that we're all here to meet your train? God knew Harry was born for politics. Looks, charm, a legal practice, the gift of gab. But if he ran for office, Mrs. Sorensen couldn't keep the job she'd talked her father into giving her when his previous secretary had left to get married, and which had sparked Kay's dreams of a business career. Sit on civic-minded committees or run clothing drives, as she'd done during the war, anything to reflect well on her candidate husband. Harry hadn't even bothered to share his ambitions with her, yet tomorrow's bugle would carry the story. She caught herself wishing he hadn't come home yet, and her face warmed again. What a disloyal wife she was! Yet the scene underlined a notion she'd wrestled with ever since penciling Harry's homecoming on her calendar. Men made war and money and received parades and praise. Some even got statues. Women made homes and children and got pats on the head, if that. Kay's heart raced as if a steel door were swinging shut on her and she'd never escape. One more question, please, Lieutenant Sorensen, Ron Gustafson pleaded. Kay stopped breathing. Sure, Harry said. He enjoyed the attention, and why not? Kay bit her that she'd have denied him his sunshine for selfish purposes. Disloyal, indeed. Wasn't Sergeant Roland Birch in your regiment? The reporter asked. Kay perked up, troubled dodged. Uh, not just that. She led a squad in my platoon. Capable, soldier. Capable? No one but Kay noticed Dad's puzzlement. He wasn't on the train, Gustafson said. Do you know if he left Camp Lewis? I'm sorry, Ron, I don't. Harry barely knew Gustafson, if at all, unless Kay had come late to that party, too. Any comment regarding his war record, the reporter asked. Extraordinary. Harry smiled. Kay thought he'd recovered, and the men chuckled. But Harry went on, if a bit hot-tempered. From time to time, I had to counsel him about that. But no man was more courageous. Thank you, Lieutenant. Gustafson scribbled away. Harry held out a hand for Kay. She went to him quickly, smiling, but her husband had just committed his first political gaffe. Whatever Raleigh Birch had done, declaring superiority over a subordinate and a celebrated one, broke a rule Dad had taught her. If you lead, he'd said, never disparage people who follow. You demean them and sound like you're building yourself up at their expense. Harry should have known better.
0: So where can we buy Lonely Are the Brave?
1: on bookshop.org or direct from the publisher which is Kinran Press that's spelled C-Y-N-R-E-N. Kinran Press.
0: Wonderful. It's been such a treat to hear you read and to hear about your research and how you developed the story and kind of where it came from. Thank you so much for being our guest on Bookable Space.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Oh anytime.